This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigan Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Dr. Rahul Jandil makes a welcome return to the podcast in this episode. The last time we spoke, we talked in detail about his work as a brain surgeon and neuroscientist. We discussed mental illness, how to improve our quality of life, why sleep is so vital to how we feel, longevity, and how pressure a computer, if you will, the brain is, and the ways in which we can optimize our health by taking care of it. In this conversation, Rahul shares his very unique perspective on life yet again, but this time not on the physical as much as the emotional. His new book, Life on a Knife's Edge, is a beautifully written account of what he has learned from the patients he has treated over the years, how he has seen the many shades of strength, resilience, acceptance and peace with the people who have trusted their lives to him. It's an incredibly powerful read, listeners, and I'll be honest with you, I am pretty squeamish and have quite a low tolerance for difficult subjects like the illnesses and the conditions that Rahul describes in such detail in the book but once I got over myself I couldn't put it down and I feel I feel so grateful for having had the opportunity to see the world through his eyes and to see people and human emotion through his eyes because it is such a unique perspective. If there's an impression one has of what a brain surgeon might be like, I suspect it's that they are the rock stars of the medical world, a specialism that few go into that involves huge risks and high rewards. And if, like me, you thought this is what a brain surgeon might be like, the rock star of the hospital they work in, you may also have assumed that in order to do their job, they had to be somewhat dispassionate, have emotional boundaries in place so that when they are in that operating theatre, they have clear clinical focus. It's very clear, though, from reading this book that every patient, every circumstance, every success, every failure has not only shaped the surgeon, but has also shaped the man. In this conversation, Rahul shares his insights, what we can learn about hope and survival from cancer patients, what he has learned about coping with trauma, 
how to mentally survive, heal and thrive and how this university dropout, believe it or not, has gone on to become one of the world's leading brain surgeons. So without any further ado, please join me in welcoming back Dr. Rahul Jandiel onto The Emma Gunn Show. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, thank you for your help uh, two years ago about, right? You know, it was, what, am I just imagining it? It felt like it was sort of just before COVID. Oh, February? that's right. <laughs> I think COVID was chasing me around the world when I was doing the paperback. <laughs> I know. That's right. It's February of uh, of 20. Yeah. So I think you actually might have been my last in-person podcast wow. for a while. So funny how things go. Have you been keeping well, though? Yeah, it was a gnarly year. Um for everyone but also in the hospitals yeah i bet i mean i don't even think because um it's a lot but um actually that probably really leads me in quite nicely to my first reaction to the book because mm. you've been on before and obviously we've had uh, quite an intense conversation about your job as a brain surgeon a neuroscientist and when i picked up the book and I got halfway through chapter one please don't be upset by what I'm about to say it's okay but I had to put it down yeah because it was quite real and two things I guess the last year has been gnarly for all of us but also it made me realize how I sort of sit in that place of ignorance is bliss which is a place you don't get to sit with what you do for a living yeah at the same time I think many of us don't take a full look at what's going on around us. Um, in the hospital, there are some brutal things going on, some, some intense experiences you can't have elsewhere. But many of us, and me even, uh, in the past, just move through the motions. Um, so this, this book is sort of my um, taking time to reflect on on human nature, not just human anatomy and the work that's in front of me. So I wrote it uh, in that difficult year in 2020. So a lot of, I look at it now and I'm like, I don't think I can write that well or that that profoundly or that just raw and unflinchingly. Like I try to write some stuff the other day and I was like, God, this 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 doesn't this doesn't sound good at all. You suck. Um, but that <laughs> that crisis led to definitely some creativity. I think. I hope people will enjoy it, but um, I think wherever you are in your life, you'll get something out of it. So they trusted me with some big themes like trauma and self and belief. So, Do you know what? That's what I think I took from it as well, is it's a really wonderful self-help book. And there's something supremely calm about it, as if you Mm -hmm. have been in the middle of so much trauma, which for want of a better expression, operates at high frequency. Mm. And yet you're somehow still in the middle, looking at it, analyzing it and learning from it. Yeah. And, and tying it together to my experiences. I was afraid that, you know, who, that if I were a reader, I would look, pick up a book and who's this guy or who's this person. And why, why do they get to comment on chapter one trauma, you know, or belief or loss or life like where does so um by sharing some of my own experiences um and then coming at it from somebody who has seen cancer patients and trauma patients i thought i had a unique vantage point to comment on those big topics and uh, 
I tried to do so, but it's impossible without talking about yourself because then it just becomes academic. And I was worried the reader would say, gosh, who's, I mean, reflections about life loss and, and survival. From, I mean, who, who, who has the right to comment on that or to even think that they have insight about that? So I wanted to earn my uh, credibility for the reader. And, and that's why I shared my own stuff um, uh, through the book. And you do as well. You get uh, you have worked with thousands of patients, probably tens of thousands of patients. Yeah. So you've seen a really heightened. You've had a really heightened experience with a lot of people going through something um, challenging, traumatic, as you say. Yeah, I mean, over, I just I was just sitting back and I was thinking. Sometimes you get caught up in the machine, but I've met over 10,000 people in the last, you know, just even if it's for 15, 20 minutes, other than last year, it was still a handshake and a conversation. As a cancer surgeon, it was an intense conversation. Mm-hmm. And I've opened thousands of skulls. So that, in, you know, that involves the before and after, not the actual work, but how do they trust you? Who are they when they wake up? Um, and I started to see some patterns. I started to see some changes uh, in them, in me. And, um, and I thought, wow, this is just the rarest vantage point, a rarest perspective on human nature. Mm. So in the beginning, everything was just to, like how to master the craft for them, for myself. And then I started to just the last few years, getting closer to 50, I'm 48 now. Just and I thought, gosh, I've I've had the privilege of really being in some intimate moments with people. I've helped over a hundred people um, let go of their lives at the end and usually through their families, but not always as chapter uh, chapter 10 of life is. I thought there's gotta be something about this um, that hasn't been shared by other physicians and surgeons mm. uh, that can add to our insights about these big topics. So I took my best shot and, they gave me a chance at it, you know, it feels good, feels cathartic. Well, I mean, after putting it down in that first chapter, because I was scared and Mm. apprehensive about how clinical it, how it talks very frankly about cancer and death, Mm. I then picked it up and couldn't put it down, obviously, Mm. that, that old story. And actually somebody who I would be pretty sure would be very happy to come on this podcast and do an entire conversation about how much he loves this book is one of my favorite guests from last year, James Nestor. Oh yeah. He loves it. Yeah. He, uh, he was very kind. Um, it, you know, it's hard to tell where it's going when you first pick it up. So you can read each chapter individually, but when I do talk about trauma or belief, there are some raw scenes, but that's just to let you know how deep I've been with people. Mm-hmm. But there's also explanations in science and anatomy and mind and behavior and how people have put it together. And wherever you are in your life, you may you may benefit from the way that cancer patients have had clarity when they see the finish line um, suddenly thrust in front of them. Mm-hmm. And what are those lessons for all of us that are now all recovering, trying to recover from a collective trauma of a pandemic, but even just the individual nature of our lives. And so James Nestor's uh, quote was, it was fantastic. I think it caught him off guard, like where, you know, where is this going? And then, and, and if you read all 10 chapters, it's building to the last few to understand 
uh, consciousness, to understand pain, to understand free will, the, the patient's stories and, the exp- and my explanations of how the brain processes that or the mind processes is sort of coming to a crescendo towards the end of the book, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think he picked up on that and, uh, and some of the publishers, especially Venetia Butterfield, who really set me free with this. Uh, she listened to a talk, I believe, at Emanuel Center. And it drifted off into some topics that were not brain related, like soul and suffering and pain and, you know, purpose and meaning. And how do we, how do you enjoy the day when every three months you have a scan that says, maybe the cancer's there, maybe it's spread, maybe it hasn't spread. I mean, it's just a lot of, a lot of intensity. And yet you also know you only have a few years. So how do you make the most while also juggling the most intense trauma? Uh, and so when we got in those topics, she, uh, you know, she, she gave me a chance and um, um, I'm feeling vulnerable for having shared it um, because it is unflinching and raw and moving and gripping. Uh, and I just have to say, it's a different thing, putting your thoughts and emotions out there because the structure of this is it's meant to be judged by the reader. It's, it was for you. It was usually patients come to me, right? They come to me, they're in clinic, they look me up or they, and so I, it's a different dynamic where they're coming to me for help. And writing this was in some ways where I'm going to the reader, um, you know, to see if I can add, add to their lives with, with a synthesis of what I've seen and done, you know, and so it, it it is a different feeling for a surgeon, a cancer surgeon. Usually, I'm in the driver's seat now. I, you know, I hope you like it. Mm. And I, I would say that if I were to sort of pick out some of the the key themes, one of the things that came out for me was coping, mm. and how it's such an instructional almost a manual in in coping whether it's you coping with very high stress situations or how people have coped with diagnosis yeah. or things like that and that's actually as soon as I got to the bit where you talked about your rhythm your three in three out rhythm breathing I thought mm. well that's what got that's what got James's attention but right. it very much about being in that high stress situation where you are operating in someone's brain and yet you say that you do have an adrenal response, that your heart is beating quickly, but you are still able in that situation to find calm, to be able to make rational decisions. Right. And there's the biology of that. And the bigger theme there is what we feel emotionally doesn't have to find a home in our skulls, in our feelings, in our lives. Yes, we feel it. We should feel it. We want the lushness of emotion, but we want it to earn a right to be there. And so while I'm operating, sometimes those, those, you know, the fear and panic creeps in. You can see it in the distance. And as the case is, you're losing control of the operation a bit. Um, and then you have to go through your own personal maneuvers. My hope is when I share those moments with people, they'll say, hey, I can apply this to when I'm in an argument with a lover or about to go into a tense meeting with a boss or frustrated over something. Um, So there are those physiologic techniques you can do, which is immediately to control your breathing because hyperventilating will just, will just freak you out even more. Simply put, it's designed that way. Hyperventilation when you're not physically active serves to 
remove too much carbon dioxide, you know, our metabolic waste that plants use as fuel. Um, if you're not running and you're breathing fast, then you're, you're messing with the design and you're, you're actually removing too much carbon dioxide. And that, that leads to anxiety, altered brain electricity, tingling. And usually, you know, you can, you can actually give yourself a panic attack by mm -hmm. hyperventilating. So mm -hmm. the first thing to do, first thing I do and is, is just really get my cadence right with my breathing. And then whatever situation I'm in, I know for me, it's not really like that's how the solution pops up. I don't want to overpresent that to people, but that's when you're at your best, uh, least fettered state from anxiety, um, most able to cope um, with the crisis in front of you. That is step one in crisis management, whether it's a deep diver or an athlete or just a mom or dad just stressed about something. That is, that is the actual thing you can do immediately and it's free and in some really esoteric brain surgical operations where we monitor people for weeks with electrodes it's been shown to calm the brain's electricity it is your built-in valium it is your built-in sedative it works through the same chemical actually the pills are made to follow the chemical changes and electrical changes that happen when you do meditative breathing so like that's a very specific thing in the book, I think people can um, get can get from it. But there's also another example. There, there are some kids who get these adrenal tumors, and their body's raging with adrenaline. The blood pressure is high, but they come in calm. And I think that illustrates something that adrenaline needs to be set free. Just because it's coursing through your body doesn't mean you are ready to do something. Mm -hmm. So the example there is um, they come in and blood pressure is high. Adrenaline is coursing through. You know, it would, it would seem they're in a fight or it would seem they're in the Olympics, but they're just calm because the, their cognition, the intersection of the, the frontal lobes and the deeper emotional lobe, there's a dance there. We're not all emotion. Mm. We're not all thought. And if we were, that wouldn't be any fun. But just like we don't jump from a plastic snake the second time because our brain says, wait a second, that's not real. The, there is the ability to tamp down some of your emotions if you choose. Mm. Just like we run from somebody in an alley if we're being chased, but we don't run out of a movie theater. There is context to adrenaline and emotion. I don't know how people will find it individually because I can't measure the crisis you're in. And I hate to give formulaic, you know, tips because how can a mom who's lost her child is under a different crisis and threat than me when I can't find my keys, even though some of the chemicals inside us might be similar. So I also want to mention to people that I, I've learned to see my patients, not only as individuals, but individuals from their former selves. So I, I like to look out, out the world and see 7 billion skulls. And that, that person I'm looking at now might be different because of the events of their, that happened yesterday to them. They may have had something triumphant. They may have been assaulted. So we are different from our former selves.
And after that cancer diagnosis, that person isn't just the, that person is different than their former selves. So I really believe that this book offers an understanding, allowing you to rely on yourself by understanding the, the things that, that uh, trip you up, the things that can serve as a crutch or an ally. So wherever you are at your journey, you can turn to yourself because the, the tips don't always apply. The, um, the quick takeaways, I think, have left some people frustrated, like, oh, I'm not resilient or I am resilient. And it's not a static thing. It depends on what you're facing. It depends on the struggle in front of you. And I think cancer patients have taught me that nuance. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do in this book. There isn't, the breathing thing is an immediate, a direct takeaway, but there are also things where you just learn about behavior and mind and psychology so you can apply it to yourself either immediately or in the future when you when you cross a path where you need to rely on something um internal not external so i, I hope people um i think people turn to it at different times my 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 deepest hope is that when people turn to this book potentially at different times in their lives or different moments in their lives they'll find different chapters having relevance Mm. Um, because some of these stories and thoughts I've had in my head for decades, you know, um, and uh, the editors are just, I mean, when I gave them like 300 pages, they were like, oh my gosh, this is just like, wow. They're like, but it, there's gold in here, but this is just some wild, raw, complex, emotional stuff. Mm. Let's make this, um, uh, let's make this something. And even you, you still had to put it down. Imagine the rough draft, but of the let's that was because of me not because of the book yeah what'd you say I said that was because of me and my own kind of like I don't like to yeah talk about those things but yeah actually in in reading the book it, you can't run away from everything forever and so it yeah. was it was a it was actually quite a it was nice to have my hand held through conversations and topics that I wouldn't normally feel comfortable being involved in but actually one of the stereotypes I think that surgeons have is that they're very dispassionate mm. and it would seem like a really smart survival mechanism actually to be somewhat emotionally shut off given as we've discovered in the tens of thousands of people that you come across you are uh, it, it must be very difficult not to be porous to the emotions coming out of them in these high stakes situations and traumatic situations but this really blows the lid off that. I mean, there's nothing dispassionate about these observations that you make in the book. Well, the, the job, has, you know, the work has to get done. And if you, if, um, if you let things sink in too much, uh, you may not actually get the work done at hand. That said, uh, people who go into cancer care, they select themselves for it if you're not ready to vibe and connect and also be uh, willing to be vulnerable yourself to, to have that cancer patient feel, not understand, but feel that, that you are there with them in this journey. If that's not something you want to do on a daily level or as your career, then don't go into cancer surgery. Don't go into cancer care. And most don't. So it's, you know, the cancer nurses, cancer physicians, assistants, cancer care in general, it selects for a certain type of clinician. Mm. Um, and I chose it. 
and um, it has it has given me so much insight into myself. Um, in the beginning, the you know it's hard. I started when I was thirty five. The training is so long, but I started when I was thirty five. And you're talking to patients who are 75 and, and um, they trust you inside your own head. There's a, you're there for them, but there was a lot more about the, you know, the craft and what I'll need to do and the dangers. And, and then now I'm 48 and especially the last three, four, five years um, that I've gotten close to um you know, with humility, mastering certain operations. You can't get the risk down to zero, but enough to where some people have come to seek me out for the their cancer surgery. Um, and so I find myself now more in, into the nuance of where are they at their life? Are you 44 and you want everything that the cancer hospital can provide because you're trying to get to a certain age because you, you are trying to not die until your child goes to high school. Like that's a different person. You're 75 and you don't want the fog that might come with certain treatments and you rather live a little less long, but the quality of life in that way is, you know, I mean, there's a lot of nuances. And then it's not just the diagnosis, you have cancer, you get treated, they're, they're living with cancer. Mm. Every three months, there's a scan all the time. And so you're, you're engaging them with a new step in their journey every three months. Oh, we've had a couple of months of, of, of no cancer, uh, you know, evidence of cancer on your scans. That's a different path. Or, hey, it's, it's still there, but it hasn't grown. It's grown, but we can watch it there are a lot more and it's in other parts of your body. I mean, they're just, you know, people think it's like you have cancer, you don't. It's a world of emotions to walk with somebody through a cancer journey. Mm. And then to do that thousands of times, it's been a unique insight, but I, I, I enjoy being more personal with my patients in the last handful of years. And I think we talked about it the other year, but my father passed away from simple complications of, I mean, uh, medical complications of a simple surgery. And then you get to see that nothing is promised, even a, even a straightforward operation. And, and you get to see that healing is a lot more than just the technical part. And, and um, so it's sort of in that confluence of what was going on with my dad and what was going on in my personal life, what was going on with, of course, the pandemic. And then this thing just, this thing like exploded out of me. And then they're like, okay, this is quite the, quite the marble. Let's shape it a little bit because it's all over the place. So I'm indebted to the editors at Penguin and everything like, you know, everything they've done mm -hmm. to turn this into something that's still raw and wild and deep, but um, has a narrative that each chapter can stand alone. Or if you're willing to take the whole journey that, it builds to the last few chapters. You said a minute ago, you chose it. And yeah. actually, I just wanted to ask you about that. Do you think you chose this or do you think in some ways it chose you? I had that conversation with my son uh, just, uh, just a couple of days ago. I've been teaching him to drive my boys. 
drive and sale. You know, I knew when I was younger that what we do will shape who we are and who we become. Not entirely. Um, but there's this concept of sublimation. It's like this uh, remote psychological term, but also comes from chemistry, how you can change phases like between gas or solid, but you can skip stages or phases. And it's sort of like sublimation is taking a potentially destructive drive and putting it to use, you know, not the same as putting a crisis to use, like, you know, Churchill said, but um, realizing you have an intensity and that if you, if you, if you put it this way, it'll be constructive. If you, if you put it this way, it'll be destructive. Mm-hmm. Um so I chose to be a cancer surgeon um, because I it, it would I knew it would be the it would take me to the experiences that would also shape the man I wanted to be. Um, I didn't want to be a plastic surgeon. I didn't want to persuade my patients to get surgery. I think I can help you. No, no, I I like the narrative. Well, you came to me, and I have been training in parallel. I have been learning in parallel and now we meet. Mm-hmm. You've come to me in a time of need. And I like the way that um I like the way that made me feel um that I could be relied upon. Um and it gets into that in the book um where in the beginning it started to shape my identity and pride. Um and maybe as it should, but in the last few years, I've, I've really started to see that the patient's journey is the mountaintop and not the dynamics of, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic, the better I am, the better it is for them. So it's a strange sort of like, you know, uh, the most healthy competition that there is, right? It's me against cancer, me against other cancer surgeons saying in my hands, hoping, showing, proving in my hands, patients do better. Um, they have fewer complications, the cancer gets out more completely. That, that is a competition between cancer center, cancer surgeons among London, New York, LA, you know, we know what we know what we do and who's better at stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe it chose me. I mean, I'm glad I had the, I'm glad it was there for me as an opportunity. It's a rare opportunity, not just the technical craft, but that patients would trust me. And, um, yeah, maybe it's both. I don't know. When you talk in the book about uh, what you just alluded to there about getting caught up in, or I can imagine it must be so intoxicating to do a brain surgery very successfully mm-hmm. and then walk through the hospital and you can feel the people looking at you as if to say, oh my God, he just did something that no one, that must be very yeah. intoxicating. Yeah, that's a good insight. Um and especially because you all wear the same pajamas. It's such an egalitarian <laughs> skill. It's like, it's like the Olympics. You have your uniform, but your, your gold medal stand is a little higher. Than, than, and, you know, the, I always love that about it too. Like the, the custodial staff to, to the brain surgeon, I love that we all wear the, mm. the same clothes. We actually go to the same locker to pull out the same pajamas or scrubs or whatever they're called over here. They're called scrubs. And so... I still like to wear my 
a nice dress shoes and this i have a whole thing about that I, that way patients families are like he's wearing dress shoes that means he wasn't really some of some of my colleagues have started to wear all these orthotics and braces because sometimes it's eight hours of standing but mm -hmm. i still operate on in dress shoes um it's just something i learned from some senior surgeons that there's a certain impact it has on the patient's families mm. that i'm in pajamas <laughs> with dress <laughs> shoes and um that it was it was physically rigorous but not enough for me to even think about my own comfort there's something there i learned that i um and i have a tattoo so i, kind of, I think it balances out the look I got the tattoo of my arm thinking, oh, well, I'll just wear a dress shirt like some corporate person. And then I was like, oh, I wear, I wear short sleeves all the time now. Um, but yeah, it is a, you know, you earn it because of the skill. I love that. Mm. I love that. And there, and what happens is um, male, female, we have some disabled surgeons uh, in, uh, in Michigan, other places. It doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter who you are it's people you know it's the theater we can look and see hey that person that human that individual is talented at that craft mm. and that also takes away some of the things that i you know felt like other careers would bring in you know um more of the patina of success rather than the actual um physical performance of something better and whereas in art and dance, there is an arbiter, a judge of the performance. This is a bit more like sport. Like you can measure the opera. We don't all do the same 100 steps or 1,000 steps. If, if you're slick and you have softer hands, you can anticipate things. You can do the same work or better work with 60 steps, faster, smoother, less tissue disruption, less complications. So there's... We're not all changing. We're, it's, it's, we're all not all just putting together the IKEA furniture. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> there aren't like the same. It's surgery. It's a craft, and uh, mm -hmm. and it's nice to. And there are definitely people who are more talented, and there are definitely people who choose complicated surgery, and um, and it comes with complicated work after the surgery is done too. Mm -hmm. The body and the person and the patient is sicker, so part of the responsibility is to get them to recover afterwards. And there, when you, they wake up from surgery and you're walking with them through what's happened, some injuries they may have come with or sustained in the operation, then, then there's a different journey with them. So it's all craft under the lights. Um, and then there's more human journey with them. Mm -hmm. So I just find it the most fascinating thing. I don't know if I'll do it forever at the same intensity I'm doing it as now, but, oh, it has been such a lens on humanity um and my responses to it have been a uh, a lens on that i've you know there's no way i couldn't turn it on myself about what was driving me what was satisfying me what was haunting me um and that's where we're at you know today and that's what's so honest in the book and i really i really appreciate the fact that you say that you did sort of go through a period of enjoying that praise and then it was a case of and that admiration and it was a case of bigger better faster stronger what's the more complicated case and then there was a shift because you were able to see that at some level that was sort of almost a personal turmoil that was driving you right and not and I don't think you were losing sight of the patients but there was a shift in 
who you put first. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, the patient's outcomes always came first, but it was self-serving to be better than the other surgeons. There was an element of that, mm. whether that was 1% or 99%, I'm not sure. Um, but now I, I actually like doing small operations, whatever the, you know, whatever, whatever the person needs, um, whatever makes, however I can help. Um, that's satisfying now, just how, just, I can do these giant operations that, you know, that you, you know, unlike medicine, which is the same. I also like that about surgery, like a, a gifted surgeon's hands are, are medicine only he can offer. Mm. You know, you, you, you got to go to that person. You can't have the bag of medicine shipped to a different hospital. Um, I just, whatever, whatever I can do to help. Um, and often that's just sometimes it, Often these are just guidance that we'll, the tools we have and the things that we can offer. Uh, maybe you don't want to choose any of them or just mm -hmm. some of them. So that's helping also, you know. Let's rewind a little bit in your career because it would be so, I mean, to look at a, go to a primary school and look at a, a class of kids. Mm. It would be very tough to say <laughs> that one's going to turn out to be a brain surgeon. Yeah, they are not. You know, they're you not. You probably could point to that one's not going to turn out to be a brain surgeon. <laughs> that would have been me getting in all the trouble, and yeah. Well, this is the thing. So last time you came on the show, I put the, I I shared the podcast. I put pictures online, and a few people said something to me that really then came back to me when I was reading the book. They said, "Oh my god, he looks like he looks like a brain surgeon." I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So it was really, it was almost kind is of that like from Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> apparently. <then. laughs> I don't know. I, you can already tell. I'm not a big one for medical dramas, so I wouldn't know. Um, yeah, I never watched it either. It's like it's like it's it's like attorneys watching law shows, you know. Not yeah, Bossman's holiday. But, so he looks like one, is what you were saying. Yeah, people were saying, oh yeah, he looks like a brain surgeon because then there was this uh, again this idea of God, he looks so put together and suave, and that's exactly what you mm. want your brain surgeon to be like. So who wears I, dress shoes? Who wears dress shoes? Exactly. <laughs> With his pajamas. Yeah. And, and listens to Nirvana, which, uh, which is also very good. But it was surprising then in a way to learn that you had been quote unquote, a university dropout and you yeah. hadn't had this kind of obvious path to getting to where you are today. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why I'm more willing to gauge the patients, uh, because I had a lot of other experiences the system forces, you know, the system selects bookworms because you have to get such high marks to get into medical school. But they haven't had life experiences. So me, it was the opposite, low marks and a lot of life experiences. Um, and it was a fan, you know, the Northern California by San Francisco was a fantastic place to study people. I think, I think that's where I've come to at this point was the care of patients was, is just the masterclass for my real curiosity for human nature. I was at emergency rooms in San Francisco general, just volunteering, just looking around, helping put wiping blood off gurneys, whatever, but during the AIDS epidemic, uh, that was an interesting vantage point again into humanity and volunteered at an Alzheimer's clinic, worked as a security guard um, in the cafeteria where my 
classmates were still, you know, attending school. So one day I'm in class with them and the next day I'm just not, um, I was okay with it. Um, and then I went to, on my way back to university, part of where I went was in South Central LA with Compton Community College, which is typically known for NWA, this, you know, the Williams sisters and, um, and Kendrick Lamar. Um, and um, there was somebody there who just inspired me, a, a teacher there that, uh, you know, he said, I know you'll do well, but I hope you do good. And that became a compass for my decisions every time you know, plastic surgery, cancer surgery, I'll go cancer surgery, nothing wrong with plastic surgery. But for me, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I like reconstructive surgery, because when we remove things, the ways they can put people back together is magical. But for me, that was the compass is to, um, to try to do good. What was the expression? That's the compass? I know he said to me, I, he wrote to me in this beautiful, you know, uh, I know you'll do well. But I hope you do good. Mm. yeah and that was just that encapsulated it for me because I was trying to figure out what my motivations were and it was choose to do good and I think he knew that it shapes the person you are you know the acts we not the thoughts we have but the the actions we carry out um and then I went to LA County where there's a huge hospital in Los Angeles. I mean, they had gangs come through there. Um, there's metal detectors before you go in. I think people think of the hospital as it's, it's not working for Google. Let's just say that. Right. It's wild. You know, I mean, it's just, it's wild. And I loved it. Um, um, and then I started taking care of cancer patients and training. And then I stopped or I, you know, sort of on sabbatical uh, for a couple of years and got a PhD and that gave me a career at the city of hope that was half scientist, half surgeon, like a laboratory with Petri dish with, you know, things that look like fog machines and shakers, CSI kind of stuff. But it was, it wasn't like, it was a kind of neuroscience I really could connect with because it's like cells in a Petri, like what happens when neurons get close to each other, they come together they coalesce by a force that we don't know. The, the universe might be pulling apart, but you put a couple of neurons in a Petri dish, they come together. And so I, I, I like the biology part of neuroscience. I feel like too much, is, too much of it has gone toward descriptive, like you show us puppies, I feel better. The neuroscience of happiness. I like that. I mean, I get that. I'm not, I don't want to diminish or we show puppies getting hurt and then we feel bad, you know, like it's sometimes they're just some of the studies. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they reveal to me. So um, there's, you know, the fad psychology. There was this thing about power pose. Like if you have a certain power pose, I'm not saying that's, it might be true, but I don't, as a, as a biologist, I don't understand how you study that. <laughs> Right. I need to know how you figured it out. Otherwise, I just go like, wow, well, you interviewed them. I feel good right now, too. You know, I, I don't I just don't, I can't wrap my I'm not just don't get me into trouble. I'm not disparaging them. But that's why I start. I like in a Petri dish if you, you know, or if you check the blood of somebody who exercises, there's more BDNF. And in a Petri dish, the BDNF makes the neurons have more branches and intersect with each other. And we know more branching connections between neurons is what happens when we practice or think or try to have emotional regulation. Like I can wrap my head around that. Right. And that's what I share with people in this book is like, 
just to riff on emotional regulation, like if we try to turn our attention inward to say, do we, do we accept the way we feel? Do we take 15 minutes a day to reflect on our reactions and our behavior? That effort leads to like, not a telescope, but a microscope. You can see the, the frontal lobe and the deeper limbic structure, the neurons that connect them. They, there's more arborization, there's branching. That's a neuroscience term. Yeah, I don't understand it. (laughs) Yeah, just branching. So rather than two neurons tip to tip, Mm -hmm. almost touching, they send more branches when you get more neurons around. So that 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 web of connections more like two trees where their canopies overlap, and they create a little ecosystem. That's how the brain works at a microscopic level. So the more you think, the more you try to think about your emotions, it will get easier to corral them or rein them in in the future so hard work on a daily level um, prepares you almost inoculates you for stresses in the future and i can show you that slide and that's why i I put it in the book where there's proof for certain things Mm. that's the concept of stress inoculation and stuff like that well it's interesting actually because we talk on this podcast a lot about mental health for example and mental health has become something that uh, and it's funny talking to you as a brain surgeon who has a whole different field of vision in this particular area. Yeah. But mental health and curing mental health or hacks to improve your mental health have become memes. And as yeah. you say, they're not really proven. Uh, what was it? The Superman. Just power hood. pose it. Just yeah. Whereas I kind of I can get on board with things like breath work and cold exposure. That's why I've got a lot of time for Wim Hof because there's data. But this, the other stuff. And an stuff, explanation, right? Yes, yes. So uh, I'm just curious. I mean, I'm sure you engage in far different Instagram from me. But do you see this as well, this idea of us talking about the brain in the terms of mental health and it's sort of getting watered down or putting into mm-hmm. these golden nuggets that are actually really quite far removed from what you see in the lab? Yeah. Um, and I think I... So let's let's dig into that a little bit. Um, if the golden nuggets don't work, I find people, especially my patients, like they don't, a lot of them will say, I don't like this thing called like beat cancer. They've actually started to resent that golden nugget. No, you're living with cancer. Sometimes cancer wins, sometimes you win, sometimes most of the time it's just a journey. So the lack of nuance was making them internalize some frustration about like, well, if my cancer is growing, does that mean I'm not a good fighter? Because I didn't beat cancer. So I think similarly in pop psychology, some of the golden nuggets, be resilient, be mindful. I don't know. I mean, if just to take an example, if I lost my job this morning, it's very appropriate to not be resilient or mindful. Mm -hmm. This is an acute stress. And so there's almost this loop of frustration, like I'm not resilient, I'm not mindful, as if there's a a, a moment of arrival in our lives. No, we're constantly calibrating based on the coping skills we have developed with what tomorrow brings. How How could have we been equipped with golden nuggets to deal with the pandemic, right? And so what I tell people is um, the, the work to understand yourself through breathing techniques, through efforts at emotional regulation, they prepare you for tomorrow. 
um, because I don't know what your tomorrow is. You know, it could be horrific. It could not. But that's what I mentioned in the book. No tragedy or triumph is forever. I've seen that in some of the patients who've lost their children. You know, it takes a long time, five, 10 years. There's no exact window for grief. But if we look at the examples of what the brain has done when we were a kid, like you're born, you can't walk. What goes on? Clearly something happens where you start to get control of your nerves, okay? Then you're an adolescent and maturity comes in at, at the electrochemical level. The, the mistake has been that the effort to develop ourselves seems to like happen and stop in, in our adolescence or early 20s. The, it's a constant cultivation of your resources, your thinking and your emotions to, to maximally cope with what your individual life will face mm -hmm. and what your own individual chemistry and biology brings to the equation. And so if we leave it that way, it's a little fuzzy. There isn't the power pose. There isn't the you know, one blueberry at sunset for 13 days or whatever. Sometimes they get so prescriptive. It's, you know, I'm just like, wait a second, eat this, do this. But there is no shortcut. Mm -hmm. um, there is no shortcut. But the examples that cancer patients will provide everybody is that if they can have a great quality of life when they, their life goes from decades to just years in front of them, those lessons, and we can also apply to our lives that aren't facing a cancer diagnosis. And that's what the book gets into also is what are the things they have done? So one thing they do is they really, we try to compartmentalize the anxiety. You're going to have anxiety. You're supposed to have anxiety. That's not when there's no, there's no reason for it. That's where you need to work on the emotional regulation with breathing, with turning your attention inward to say, do I really want to feel this way? Does it deserve a right to be there? Just that effort, just that insight will help those bran that branches between those two regions of your brain. But what we do is, okay, we're going to have the worst week of our lives in the week where you get the scan, right? The emails come in, you got to drive to the hospital, you got to get in the MRI scanner. Trying to not be stressed out or trying to not be a wreck that week is actually counterproductive. Just let's just have a bad week. Of course, you're getting a brain scan. You don't know what's going to show. That's, you don't, there's, you don't have to be resilient through that. You don't have to be mindful through that. But let's also leave it for the 11 weeks after the, until the next scan. So it's, it's, it's not dribbling or trickling into the, into those weeks in between because the years are limited. So they've, by allowing people to have these decompressions in a structured way, when it's appropriate, I think that's helped my patients quite a bit. Um, and so it's okay to be stressed out and the, 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 just let stress earn a right in your life. Mm. And so the last thing I would say about that is what they've shown me is a bigger concept of resilience. So that's a word I'm struggling with lately too. It's, it's not whether you are resilient or aren't, there's actually two types of resilience. Um, one is systemic resilience. That's what you talked about, like the coping skills you've built up. Like we've gone through life. This pandemic is going to make us tougher in some ways. That's in you. That's what you bring to the struggle. But there's also, and, and if you think of it this way, this way, there's always optimism. There's also processive resilience. Mm 
what the struggle brings out in you. Mm. So wherever you are, whether you're coping well, because you've come armed and equipped with a lot of things, because you've gone through stuff and you've endured and you've, you know, you've done, you've flourished. Um, that's great. But if you are struggling, either because you haven't worked on yourself or just that the external stress is so great that your story is not fully written. You can now demonstrate your resilience. It's what this struggle will bring out in you, preparing you for the next struggle. So that way, resilience is what you bring to the fight, but also what the fight brings out in you. That's the cancer patient way of looking at it rather than I'm resilient, you're not resilient. It's just, there is, you cannot encapsulate it in a moment of time. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, it's a dynamic. It's an equilibrium that shifts. Um, and you're in control of that equilibrium for the most part. In the, you talk about the crescendo in the book. And as I got further into the book and as I got close to the end, I made more notes about um, you in particular, just sort of thought that's really interesting. And it felt as though you, uh, you talked about it being cathartic, but I don't know whether you had your own moments where you just talk really uh, honestly and you say, I, you have a feeling of not having reached your potential. There's some, a fear of, um, and a feeling of being underestimated mm-hmm. that uh, informs how maybe you were acting outwardly. And it, it felt very much, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe uh, examining all of this really was that sort of moment in the mirror where you kind of had an where you had an opportunity to look at yourself and figure out what you were doing right, what you had done wrong, and be but you see it seemed like it seems as though you're really fair with yourself if there have been errors in the past. Um I tried. Well, you know, I tried to not uh spare myself. You know, it's a it's um I'm a flawed person. Um, But that must be difficult. Sorry to interrupt. That must be difficult when people are looking at you as almost some sort of savior. They don't want to believe that you're flawed because they need you not to be. Yeah. And in the clinic, in the operating room, I did, I mean, in the operating for sure, but in the clinic, I did approach it that way earlier on. But now I think they connect more with me when they realize he's got a lot of issues going on in his life. He's had uh, struggles in his life. Um, and uh, sharing that with patients, bringing my own dimension of suffering, not to calibrate or measure it with anybody else's, but sharing that with them, I think they, they understand that it, it, not only, it humanizes me. I mean, they come for the craft, but but they also have to choose to go on a dangerous journey. And what I realized more and more is that there are other capable surgeons. I think I like to think, I hope um, that they're, they're coming to me now because, you know, when you go through a complex cancer operation and that um, the humanity of the person that will take you through the, uh, the inevitable complications and the and the conversations where um, operations may not help may have even hurt like that those I think I like to think they come now 
also in seek of that connection during those last few months and years of their life that yes the work but also the partner in these extremely intense last few months last few years i think um and and to do that i um i have been more willing to share my flaws with them and um and, and frankly they have comforted me even even though i don't have cancer um and and that's just the i think that's that's like chapter 10 you know in um in life i just the last couple of paragraphs i why are you thanking me i have you know i have been fortified by your by you permitting me to come along in this journey and uh, without having to bear the real weight you know i i have not had cancer um and so i feel a tremendous gratitude for all of them individually and collectively the journey and i think that's what's so special about being a cancer surgeon now is it really's offered me the breadth of human experience from peak technical performance and the highs that come with it to the uh to absorbing the personal injury from seeing all those patients i've taken care of and almost none of them are alive now all that the drawers filling up with the invitations to the funerals and stuff like that you know the um yeah that's the life i chose and i thank my patients for for letting me care for them when you say it like that it would it would seem that there might be times days when it almost gets too much but it does from what you've just said and from the book it seems that actually it's a service that you just don't want to it must be very tough mm. um but also meaningful so i mean i i chose it it's i mean i like having a good time but that's not that's not where i'm at in my life now and uh so it does add a lot of meaning and purpose to my life i'm 48 i take care of patients that are my age or younger i i do pediatric surgery overseas and so the meaning and purpose that it adds to my life is helping me i think look to the decades ahead if if you know if they are given to me i think it's it's making me i'm starting to feel like being along with their journey the lessons i've learned from them is really letting me live almost many lifetimes in one life wow it was an intense journey with them the just the sheer numbers and all of that i mean just the things i have seen and done uh, and felt it really feels not more than a life well lived but um many lives lived in one life um if you bring in my own personal narrative i had no reason to be in this position or um the troubles i got into as a kid i mean just moving through a lot of different physical spaces london was a life vest 2 years ago i was in a difficult time in my life and and um so the physical spaces from from the foothills in kashmir to los angeles to southern south america central america you know just eastern europe southeast asia having some relevance now 
hopefully not briefly in, in the UK. Oh, it's a big spatial life. I've had tremendous friends, just wonderful family. And then you add on top of that, <laughs> the patient journey, the physical demands, the emotional demands that, um, <laughs> to put it more casually, somebody said, well, you're, and somebody said to me that you're only 48, you're kind of young to be writing this book. And I said, well, I mean, I got a lot of mileage. And I said, oh, okay. And, um, and so it's, uh, it's fantastic. You know, this book is very dear to me. Um, mm. um, and it's interesting just to go back to what you said about, it feels like I'm being honest. I have, I have done my best to be honest because this would be the, this would be sort of the, it has memoir elements in it, but it's more of a cycle. It's more of a, it's more of a self psychological excavation. Also, it's not, it's not meant to be like, it's not, I was born here or there. It was, it's, it's a memoir about how I have been thinking through the journey. It's not mm -hmm. like, it's not a Wikipedia memoir. Yeah. And uh, I still, it's, you know, dedicated to my sons and, it's, uh, it's so liberating to have told your own story with the flaws, with your interpretations and with your lessons and insights. Uh, it almost feels like I can live another life going forward. Like this is a, <clears throat> like maybe my life will have an act three, which is a rare thing for an individual. So I'm quite optimistic um, and excited for the future. But this does feel, this does feel sort of a, as the as the cap of a very complex life um, in which I try to engage the world intensely emotionally with empathy and um, and then we'll see what the future brings won't be won't be what's in there that's it as once in a lifetime kind of stuff in there. yeah well I can tell you as someone reading it it does it felt very precious it felt very personal and very precious and um even though I am a wuss who gets scared by watching medical dramas and so some of the vocabulary well some of the situations that you paint and are in in the book are a little bit like for me um I feel so I I know I'm definitely better for having read it because it's given me such a, a wonderful perspective because seeing the world through the eyes of a brain surgeon who deals with as you say the many 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 wonderful people that you get to experience such incredible situations with it's it's wonderful um thank you so much for coming back on the show it's been really nice to chat it's been my pleasure yeah thank you so much for including me anytime I don't take it for granted oh that's so that's so kind and you're welcome back whenever you wish all right we'll see we'll see what the we'll see what the next chapter brings Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you found that conversation interesting. If you would like to get in touch with me, please don't hesitate. The beauty podcast at gmail.com is where you can get to me. Or you can also slide into my DMs on Instagram and Twitter, where I am at Emma Guns. If you head to the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode, you'll be able to join the Facebook forum where there are thousands of your fellow most excellent listeners chatting about all sorts of things beauty, health, wellness, fitness, you name it. No subject is off limits and there are conversations aplenty going on in there. Come and join us. We would love to see you there. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Mm -hmm.